Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is September 21st, 2015, and this is episode 1648 of the Survival Podcast. And as it's a Monday, you've got me with listener feedback today, taking your emails and responding to them. These are emails that you send to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, make sure TSPC is in the subject line, TSPC. And like question for Jack, comment for Jack, anything like that going along with it will kind of cue me in on that's why that email is coming in, that it's for this show. And uh, I'll take a look at it, see if I can get it on the air for you. Today's show is going to probably have more responses than a typical Monday show, but they're going to be much shorter. I'm going to try to go through things and abbreviate some responses instead of going into the detail that I do at some times to try to put more variety into today's show. Uh, so that's what you have to look forward to. Before we get to those, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey Guy, the actual one, the only Berkey Guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey Guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting and if there's a problem that gets corrected fast and properly. 
Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was when well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, Directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1648, because the episode is 1648. And uh, Alex Shrugged has three queued up for us at tspwiki.com. We have The False Messiah makes his claim. Then we have The Society of Friends, Spiritual Renewal, and Global Cooling. And then we have The Peace of Westphalia Places Limits on Modern War. That one's really interesting, and it's one you really, really, really might want to read. It's not the one I'm going to read today, but there's a lot of things there uh, that, that still affect the way that the world thinks about war and what we call the rules of war, international rules of war. I'm going to read The Society of Friends, Spiritual Renewal, and Global Cooling. Something is changing in general religious observance. People are seeking personal connections with God. This is not new. There have been examples since the Middle Ages, but a lot of groups have been signing up lately to seek out a spiritual experience. With so much war, death, and destruction, often precipitated by organized religion, is it any wonder that religious folks are looking for inner peace? The Quakers are not known as Quakers yet. That is an outsider's description of them. They call each other friends, and they have organized themselves into a society of friends. There is a strange, uh, they are a strange group at this time, often falling down at meetings, shaking and crying out in ecstatic frenzy. To be proven a prophet, individuals will walk around naked in public in obedience to the Lord. There are 45 documented cases of friends walking around naked for this purpose. These peculiarities will cause a backlash and they will be called Quakers because of their shaking fits. These fits will greatly be reduced after 1660, but the Society of Friends will be remembered for them, and the name will stick. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, I love their oatmeal, and every Quaker I ever meet seemed like a nice, normal, good person, so what was happening in the 1640s and 50s to make these people shake, and why did they eventually calm down and put their clothes back on? And an euthistic spiritual ecstasy one could get caught up in hysteria. Psychologists call it conversion disorder. It is brought on by stress and can reduce muscle tremors or uh, and psychotic behavior. But this doesn't explain why the shaking tapered off in the 1660s. An article in the journal Quaker History points out that these are the symptoms of St. Anthony's fire, which is caused by ingesting a fungus-infected rye product. The fungus produces a hallucinogen. This is why rye might be infected more in 1648 than other times due to various volcanic eruptions and sunspot minimum causing cooler temperatures. By 1660, the world temperature began to rise, so there was less fungus. Those were strange times. So acting strange in those days was not unusual. People thought it was the end of days. You'd have, you think you have it bad now, you should have seen it then. Here's my take on this. Um, this is another way that I believe we can have what's called a placebo effect, 
when we're not dealing with a placebo. So imagine that you have found this new way to practice your spirituality, whatever that is for you, and you're doing these things and, and what have you, and then all of a sudden hallucinations start. It's not a big leap for you to make the connection. Maybe God's talking to me. And I think that this has an effect on a lot of things. So I think one of the big problems we have in modern medicine is that we say, well, it's a placebo effect, as though, well, that's not valuable. For instance, one of the most subject to placebo effect things we have in, in, in our world today are, are um, warts. And there's, you know, in, in like medical literature, there's doctors that almost make fun of, of patients who they've used placebo effect on who've had warts just shed off and fall off. Well, I think we should be looking at that and saying, well, what's the body's curative process there? Right? If something can precipitate a biochemical response in the body or a physiological response in the body, is it truly a placebo? Another way to understand this would be, let's say someone has a disease, an illness, and that illness is not an illness that would respond to antibiotics. But if they have a secondary infection that we don't really detect and they're given antibiotics anyway, and the antibiotics help correct that secondary infection, they begin to feel better, they believe the medicine is working, could that placebo effect actually enhance the healing of the body's natural response to the viral thing? Because coming back to warts, do you know how you get rid of a wart? You either burn it with actual heat, you cut it off, or you chemically eradicate it. Do you know what other disease, those are the three primary ways we get rid of them, though we do it a little bit differently, but in the end we either burn it, we either chemically burn it, or we cut it off, cut it out. Cancer. Yes, cancer. Warts um, in their treatment are very similar to how we treat cancer. And if the body's healing capacity can be harnessed in one, it might be harnessable in the other. Maybe it's not about taking a whole bunch of nutrition. Maybe it's not. A, who knows? But, but my point is that there's probably a way that if modern medicine would actually appreciate and respect the way human beings biochemically respond to stimulus, instead of just trying to make another drug to put on top of it and rule that other factor out as an annoyance, we might come pretty far with healing. Because there's an entire capacity of the body to heal that we simply do not understand, and because it hasn't really looked like something you can make a lot of money with, we haven't really looked into it. In fact, we've tried to get rid of it. And there's a place for getting rid of it, to be fair. If I'm evaluating a medication, I do want to rule out the placebo effect in that evaluation. Uh, as Charlie sets up his displeasure at modern medicine there. I do want to rule that out. I want to know that, hey, this effect is measurable and real, and here's what it does, and here's side effects, and the side effects are different than the placebo group. Therefore, these are real side effects as well. I want to know all that because there are some great drugs out there that have saved a lot of lives. There's way too many drugs, though, that don't do anything except repackage bullshit, and the side effects sound worse than the thing they treat. That's my take by Jack Spirico. I think we need to be figuring out What causes the body to heal when the body believes that it's time to heal? Because that does happen. And in this case, I think it may be true that these Quakers were quaking because they were jacked up on uh, on, on rye. Ergot, I think, is the, the fungus there. And uh, might have said, hey, this seems to go along with my conversion. Uh, again, let's kind of move on from there. Uh, I want to remind you guys real quick about the uh, Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. 
You can help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode by becoming a member, and the discounts that you get will more than pay for your membership. That's all I have to say today. For more about that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and sign up there. Okay, so let's get into your first bit of uh, feedback for today's show. I'm going to go a little quicker on most of these. At least I'm going to try if I don't get down a rabbit hole or something and try to cover more variety for you today. Start off with like a homesteading question. It says, what is the best way to monitor a duck coop at night? Uh, from Predators, I recently bought 10 300 hybrid ducks. They're four weeks old, and I've already had to pop a raccoon. They happen to be circling the coop. Is there any? Is there an easy listening post I can set up to hear them if they're freaking out at night? Should I use something else? Um, I, I don't know, you know, what you would do electronically to hear your ducks being upset or anything. And frankly, if your ducks are going to be anything like all the ducks I've raised, you'd probably hear them a lot anyway, because a lot of times at night they just start talking out there to each other. So I don't know that that would really help. I guess you could set up motion detectors along the lines of what you can do with mirrors radios, where you have these uh, like four sectors, and those would go off if something was out there. And you'd want to point them so that they go around your holding area, uh, not so that it would be tripped off by your, your bird. So I don't know what you mean either by duck coop. So my birds are not actually in a coop. They're in a holding area, and I think they do better that way. If they're in a coop, if you actually have trained them to go into a house, and with a small number of ducks like 10, this is reasonable to do, um, then I would just focus on making your coop uh, predator-proof. I would make it so nothing can get in there. I would do things like along the bottoms and anywhere uh, where an animal might try to go underneath, uh, put that, uh, that, that uh, I can't think of what it's called now, but it's... Uh, It's really, really sharp stuff. Um, God, what, what, do, what do they call that? A lath. The lath stuff, right? So it's like diamond lath. Um, you know, put that around there because when they try to dig into that, it, it just cuts their feet up and, and they don't get in there. Make sure, you know, that all the ways that an animal could get in are, are you know, predator-proof. If you're going to do what I do, which I actually think is better for ducks not to be in an enclosure you know, against their will so that they can go in there when they want to, but they can come out because what happens a lot of times, especially in winter climates, you get humidity in there and it gets really wet and then they're wet and that's not good. So if they can get outside, they can dry, you know, unless it's raining or snowing and, uh, but they'll go in there when they want to be in there and you get better airflow by having it open. So if that was the case, then what I would actually recommend if you have predator issues is I would put, um, hot wire around your kind of your corral. And the way I would do it to, to make it pretty damn foolproof is I would run one wire at about six inches high, uh, where anything's trying to go underneath, it's going to get nailed in the back. Anything climbing up is kind of going to get in the face. I'd run another wire a foot higher than that one, where if it's climbing up, you might like complete the circuit, so to speak. And I'd run one halo around the top. And I bet you you're not going to have any raccoons getting in there. Because uh, they're pretty smart. And once they get popped a couple times, you know, it, it kind of sends the message that this sucks and I don't want this to happen. And unlike, you know, running electric fencing around a one-acre property or whatever, wherever you're holding your ducks and knives, probably a real relatively small area. It wouldn't cost much to do. Assuming you have electricity there, you can just run a standard, uh, you know, fence, fence charger uh, that plugs into the wall. And I'm thinking, even though I've had no predator issues here, I still think about doing it often here. I think it would make sense to do um, just to make sure that they're protected. Because I do know we have coons here because I've seen coon tracks. I do know we have foxes because, well, upgrade the rooster before he went to live with somebody else, tore up a fox. Yeah, I had a rooster that tore up a fox. Crazy, I know. Uh, but that's what I would look at doing. It's just trying to make sure either it's, 
you know, protected from predators if it's a coop by being closed in and make sure you have good ventilation to go along with it for your winters. And then if they're going to be outside, I would go ahead and I would put hot wire around there. And I think it would cost you less than doing MERS radio detectors. And instead of you just having it go off every time something blows by it, uh, you're going to go out there you, you, and, and just find happy ducks in the morning because you're going to have electrocuted raccoons. Uh, that, that's that's my advice on that one. Let's take another one. Take one on uh, public education here. This comes from Brad. Brad said, I went to a parent meeting at my daughter's elementary school last week. The principal inevitably talked about the importance of attendance. In the middle, she dropped this nugget. Studies have shown that kids that do, do best when parents teach them to treat school as their job. Remember, we're training workers here. Ugh, unfortunately, public schools are our only real option right now, but you've helped me reframe that as best I can. Instead of feeling obligated to have my kids in school, I allow the state to assist in their education and will monitor that education closely until such time as I find a better option. I think there's a lot of us, you know, out, out there that that's kind of where they're at. You know, you, you can't, it, it'd be great if everybody could homeschool. It'd be great if we could have thousands and thousands of homeschool groups. And I think we can eventually, but right now society kind of works on a different wavelength. And you have so many two-parent working families, and gee, do you think maybe that's a little bit by design? But we have to have women's lib, and I think all women that want a job should have one, but how many people really want a job? How many people really want a career? I mean, if you, if you, if you had enough money to pay all your bills, like you had like an angel that just brought you, your, you know, 1.5 times your paycheck every month, would you still have a job? And you might find there's a whole lot of people that don't want to work. That's why, you know, we have all these people on assistance programs that figure out how to get there. I know a guy from, from you know, past relationships in business that one day I heard from, he said, I'm retired now. And this guy's like a little younger than me. I'm like, dude, what do you mean you're retired? He goes, I'm on disability for the rest of my life. He views it as retired. We have people strategically trying to figure out how to get disabled enough to get a poverty wage for free so they don't have to work. So maybe it isn't that women really want to be out in the workplace or that men do either. I mean... I don't want a job. I have a business, but I don't want a job. Jobs suck. Jobs are what you do when you have to, to earn enough money to get what you want in life so that you can figure out how to get more, right? And I know not all jobs suck and not everybody hates their jobs, but there's a whole bunch of us we would prefer not to, to work. And then we could do more to see to the education of our children ourselves. That's how society existed up until, you know, the agricultural revolution and the advent of slavery and modern slavery's replacement up there. But... It's interesting that when people just start talking, that eventually the truth does come out. I mean, this is why if you are being interrogated by a police detective, um, once they realize you're not gonna, you're not gonna just say, "Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm guilty. Uh, arrest me, please." They'll try to get you to talk about anything. Like you'll say, "I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't want to discuss this thing further. I don't want to answer questions." And, and they might try the whole, "Yeah, you know, that doesn't look right" or whatever. But if a good interrogator will say, "Okay, that's fine," you know. But we're kind of stuck here for a while, so you know, what do you do for a living? Right? Do you like your job? Uh, yeah. Where do your kids go to school? My kids went to school there for a couple of years. Now they're over. Whatever. Just because you get somebody talking sooner or later, the truth just falls out of their mouth. Well, that's what happened with this principle here. The importance of attendance is because we're training workers. That, that's what the system actually is designed to do, is train workers. Do we need to be training all our children to be workers, or do we need to be training them to be responsible so they can determine what future they want? See, worker is a very pre-programmed thing. Worker is like designed to be told what to do and comply. right? Well, we don't need 300 million people doing that. 
we need some people doing that, and some people like that role in their life. Some people gravitate towards employment, not just because they need money or not just because they want a job, but because that's the kind of person they are. They like to have clearly defined boundaries. They like to have clearly defined rules. They want to have a sense of purpose. They want to be compensated for what they do, and they want to have a basic job. Great. Why are we trying to make everybody like that? Because that's what the system is designed to do. And because a hundred years ago, that's what we needed. A hundred years ago, a person that was popped out of this system could probably find a job. You know, right up until the Great Depression, anyway, when you know, kind of the, the truth came out about the reality of the way we were running the economy at the time. But I mean, in the end, that's the kind of jobs that were available, and there were decent jobs for the time available for people that came out of the system from the 1860s all the way up into the 1960s and 50s. And so, even into the 70s, except for the you know big recession there and all. But when it came down to it, the jobs that were available were, were, were perfectly matched to the system. Well, I don't know if you've paid attention. I know if you're like me and you grew up in the 70s and 80s, when somebody talks about a car being like an 82 car, it doesn't sound that old to you, right? Because you remember when an 82 car was a new car? Guys, it's 2015. That thing's an antique you got it, right? It's, so it's, it's hard for us sometimes to realize how much time has passed. If you're in this you know, 40, 50-year-old generation area that we're, we're in right now, we don't feel old, but we're starting to feel old, that type of thing. Um, there's, <laughs> there is just a totally different world now. And we, what we have is we have parents in their 40s that grew up with parents in their 40s who were indoctrinated into this viewpoint that are teaching our children that you you go to school, you get good grades, you do the teacher says, you don't question anything, and you'll get a good job when you get out after you go to college. And it's just not the truth. It's just, you see, we're lying to our children. What we're, we're doing is we're sending them into worker camp, right? That's what it is. We're sending them to work camp. That's what school has become. You go there for 12 years to be programmed to do whatever the hell you're told the way you're told to do it. And because we don't think that's good enough anymore, you add four more years of that. Maybe it takes five years for you to get through it. You go into debt. See, and the beauty about debt for the system is if I send you through that and then you spend $100,000 in debt, I get to fund my university systems, which you know chalk out all the other scientific things that I can use to further my goals for running a society and whenever I want a, a result uh, to scientifically prove my point of view I just fund a study and you know you've been nice to provide you know funding for the facility I just have to fund the study and that way I get the result that I'm looking for and then when you pop out of that system you're in debt up to your ass actually your eyeballs right um and that means you now have to work for the rest of your life just to pay back the debt for the education that you got that may not really be as marketable as I told you it was when I sold it to you, but we're training workers. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing always, whenever you hear in principals and teachers and administrators talk about attendance, 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 remember it's about money. In the end, it's about money. Every time your kid's ass is not in a seat, it costs that school some money that day. Um. It is a sad system we've built. We are using children as funding vessels for public education. That's what they are. We have, we have so cheapened what we're doing that we think that the child, you know, that, that the, the child is a dollar sign in that seat. And the administrators that think that way think that way because it's true. It's not because they're shitty people. 
It's because they're in a system where they know, I, if I have too many absentees, I'll be short on funding to get through this year. We've Again, the system is the problem, and, and the system is beyond repair at this point. Back to kind of a homesteading question from Brad. Brad says, I've got weeds coming up through my wood chips. Do I move the chips around and dig out the weeds or just throw more chips on? I recently used chipdrop.in, great service, by the way, to have some chips delivered to my Seattle, Seattle area garden stead. I needed to get them out of the driveway quickly, so I didn't spend much time pre-weeding the area. The chip depth varies from about an inch to three to four inches, and there are pesky weeds shooting up through the chips now. I'm just curious if throwing another couple inches of uh, thin spots might might smother them out, helped by some coming cold weather, or if I just created a lot more work for myself and I need to dig the weeds out. You really should dig the weeds out, and it depends on what you have. If you have annual weeds, then all you really need to do is just take a light hoe and just start hoeing them. And you can just cut them off at the ground level and, and they'll die. If you have deep-rooted perennial weeds, you really need to dig them out. Assuming that you want this place to be well manicured and groomed to get rid of those weeds. If you just throw more wood chips on, what you're doing is you're, you're basically time-delay composting. And you will grow more and more weeds. Now, eventually, most of these systems get fertile enough, your number of weeds go down. On, on its own, because fertile ground doesn't generally grow, grow the things we think of as weeds. Um, grass, though, loves fertility. Uh, so one of the most invasive things in wood chip beds is grass. So then we have to decide, do we want to just use grass as a ground cover? Is this a garden bed? Is, so it depends on what this is. Now, your easiest solution, if this is a garden spot, where you're going to do peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and stuff like that. I would just get a tarp that is the dimensions of the area. I would go ahead and, and you want your wood chips even on their depth. And about two to three inches is a good depth. Much deeper, you start to get some actual problems. There is a little bit of a nitrogen loss sometimes if you go a little too deep with your, with your wood chips, especially in the first year. So what I would personally do is I would up that fertility... Uh, in, 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 by using a good organic fertilizer, I would feed my microbes with something like a little bit of uh, dried molasses, horticultural molasses, or a liquid product, and kind of just give it a good soaking in that. Level those wood chips out, bring a little bit more in, what have you, and then just tarp it until you're ready to plant into it. And you will rob all of those, those weeds of sunlight, and you will do a good job at knocking them back. Uh, specifically your perennials that are, you know, living on that root. If you starve them of light long enough, that root will begin to rot, and you, you kind of win the battle that way. And then be diligent with your maintenance going forward. Another thing you can do is if you have a fairly large area, but you're going to have multiple beds in it, then you can take and buy smaller tarps or cut your tarps to fit those areas so that you only untarp what you're planting at any one time. What I've gone to for my actual garden beds is I use weed blocker fabric. I pulled all my mulch back. I put down the weed blocker fabric. I threw the wood chips back on top of it, and I cut holes through wherever I plant. When I do a row crop like green beans, I take a razor knife and cut a line all the way down and put my green beans in. And you have to have a little split, like a little farm furrow there, uh, and two rows of green beans. If I do things like a pepper plant or a broccoli plant or something like that, cut a hole big enough to put your seedling in there, pop it in, put the wood chips back around it, and I've had much better results, and it's much easier to control. I have a couple beds I still need to completely eradicate of weeds, uh, not really eradicate of weeds, but I have some pretty big grass rhizomes in there that need to come out because they'll find their way back up through and uh, get the rest of the stuff planted for fall. 
And so that's the approach I'm taking. So it all depends. Again, if you're diligent and you have the time and it's not that big of an area, the easiest thing is a good sharp hoe and just go out there every day for like the next couple weeks anyway and just hoe those weeds off at the ground level. And if you keep doing it, even perennials, you're effectively being the tarp. They're just not going to get enough energy and you're going to favor what you're growing. So it all depends on the the totality of the goal here. Is it a garden bed? Is it uh, an area that's going to become food forest? If it's an area that's going to become food forest, you know, just knock it back with the hoe once every three weeks and don't worry about it. Because you're going to end up putting trees and bushes and shrubs in there, and eventually that's going to shade out most of your weeds. If, if it's going to be an annual garden, you got to get much more control over it. An annual garden is a natural system in which humans are a natural part thereof. So, If you want an annual garden, you have to actually become part of the system, and it requires maintenance. That's why perennials are, you know, easier to grow over time. Anyway, with that, uh, let's move on. Uh, chip, chipdrop.in. That's a great service if anybody around you that has chips is using it. I filled out the profile on there a couple of times, never heard a word, never got any wood chips, and my profile is like, I have a 16-foot double gate. You don't have to call. You don't have to make arrangements. Pull in, dump it anywhere in the top of the field, and leave. Please close the gate when you're done. I've made it as easy as possible, and no one's ever showed up. So uh, it may work for you. It may not. Again, the website is chipdrop.in, chipdrop in, and uh, I will put a link in the show notes for you guys so you can fill that out. And uh, I think one of the best things maybe we can do is start telling contractors about it so that we can build the other side of it, because I think there's plenty of us that would be happy to take all the wood chips we can get. One more thing before we move on. The good news about using wood chip mulch is if you're diligent in the beginning and you don't let something that's like a, a deep-rooted rhizomous grass get into there and you start pulling your weeds out, your soil structure gets amazing very, very quickly. And you get to a point where something like a dock or a dandelion with a deep root, if you do want to pull it out, it, it, it's it way easier than you'd expect. You just kind of wiggle and pull and wiggle and pull, and it just comes out almost like a carrot out of loose, fertile soil. Uh, it's not that way in the beginning. It takes some time to develop that level of soil structure, but keep working on it. It'll be worth the effort. Uh, another question on kind of homesteading stuff here. It says, uh, would grafting male sea berry, a.k.a. sea buckthorn limbs, on a female plants be viable to make a self-fertile sea berry? The problem is that this person is wanting to grow sea berry in their backyard, but it is a small yard and they feel they only have room for two of them. You, you may have more than room for two of them, but what you're asking about is definitely something you can do. Uh, if you get uh, Ben Falk's book, he actually has in there exactly where he's done that, why he's done that, and how he's done that. And uh, it's, it's really not that hard other than they're thorny buggers, you know. Uh, but I think that Ben graphs about four or five or six tips on this, you know, several different branches on his sea berries uh, per female. And that really, you know, he's got plenty of room. It's not so much even a space-saving thing. He just gets much better yields that way from what I've seen. So it's, uh, it is definitely viable and it's, it's like grafting anything else. You got to pick the right time of year, have good size scions and stuff. And, uh, you know, the thing is you can, you can probably graft on 10 tips and if five of them take, you're good. And, uh, if all of them take and you decide there's more than you really want, you can just prune a few off. So I'd give it a shot and try to think about, you know, maybe you could fit more in than two. Um, there's only so much of a yield on one sea berry. But they are a very tall, spindly plant. They're not really branchy out, you know, heavy branched out plants. Um, I think Ben has his planted at like 
two feet apart, if I remember right, maybe three feet apart. Uh, and, you know, they're big, mature plants. You could certainly put several varieties together and get a good mix of uh, different kinds. My personal experience so far with Seaberry here is they don't like this place. They don't like the alkalinity. They don't like the heat. Uh, I had a bunch of seedlings I planted in a shady spot, and they all died. So I, I don't really understand what happened. I have two females down there um, that I put where these uh, nine seedlings were, and the females have like like looked like they were going to die, and they came back, and they looked pretty good. Uh, but all the seedlings died, and this was like a second year that they died in. I, I, I don't really get it. That area is good and moist compared to other parts of the property. And I have some out in more heavy sun, which you wouldn't think Seabury would do good in this heat, and they seem to be doing okay, though I've killed them in other plots too. So I think my work on Seabury is coming to an end here, and I'll leave it to other people in places with climates better suited to them. Uh, but definitely the grafting you can do. Uh, and as always, Nick Ferguson's uh, plant propagation course has uh, complete information on grafting on it as well. So check that out too. I should point out that this technique can be used on another very popular uh, plant, kiwis. Kiwis graft easily and you can easily graft some male uh, vine onto your female kiwis and thereby save space. Uh, that's a way to make a self-hardy uh, kiwi. And I've actually seen kiwis done with like four varieties of kiwi on one Uh, one one main plant. So uh, it may not be as easy to manage. And, of course, if you lose your one vine that comes off of that, you've got a problem. But it can and has been done. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, next up, time to uh, beat up on California again. Um, this comes from Jake, and it's about Trace. Uh, Trace is a new program in California. Let me read a little bit of it to you. and It's another example of... Um, California hating freedom and using fear uh, to precipitate you knocking out your neighbor for having a garage sale that you don't have a business permit for or something like that. Trace is the Tax Recovery and Criminal Enforcement Task Force, a pilot program facilitated by California Assembly Bill 576 Revenue Recovery and Collaborative Enforcement Team Act. Join state and federal resources to collaboratively combat illegal business activities that rob California of public funds and its citizens of public services. In other words, you're taking their money by not paying them taxes. Uh, a little segment here I'll, I'll read for you. What is an underground economy? Underground economy is a term that refers to those individuals and businesses that deal in cash and or use other schemes. See, using cash is a scheme. You see that? Taking cash in your businesses through the government is a scheme to conceal their activities, identities, and true tax liability from government licensing, regulatory, and taxing agencies. The state of California loses billions of dollars to the underground economy, fraud, and tax evasion, uh, most often occurring cash-driven businesses such as bars, restaurants, used car dealerships, and construction, but it's also common in the business of selling counterfeit products in the tobacco industry. Tax evasion hurts California's economy as legitimate businesses are confronted with unfair competition, funding for public resources are lost, and employees are forced to work in conditions without basic protections or maybe even lose their job. Um, <laughs> listen to this. This is where they go next. Why should I care? Well, illegal underground activities uh, often fund organized crime, which can impact your local community. Yeah. So you're fighting the mob now. When you buy black market drugs, your health is threatened from unsafe products. Have you seen the death toll from prescription drugs? I'm just saying. When you pay for services under the table, you might be supporting human trafficking, modern day slavery. It ends with us. I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to read any more of this. You can read the whole thing if you want to. Um, but 
Only California would try to convince you that your neighbor's little cash business needs to be narked out on because it could be supporting human trafficking and slavery. Only California. I mean, I, I, I just think that California, unfortunately, is what every state will look like in 20 years or less. Some of them may even be ahead of California. But this is, this is what everybody, see, here's, here's what's really going on. The state wants more money than it can get. When I say the state, I mean the state of California in this position. So they raise taxes as much as they can get away with, and then that doesn't work. And then they create all kinds of fees and stuff like that. And it's their actions that create this underground economy. It's their high taxes that create this underground economy. If you're running a state, if you're going to have a state and you run a state, then you want minimal legislation and regulation fees and costs. And if you do that, then 99% of the business is done what you call above the table, right? Because it's so inexpensive to do business, I might as well just report and pay. Again, as, as an anarchist, I find all of this to be theft, but I'm talking about the, the general flow of society. So society says, hey, you know what? It's much easier to just do business this way, pay for my license, pay for my fee, charge the sales tax, whatever it is, pay the income tax, Because they're not asking for that much. So, But the problem is when a government does that, it becomes very successful. And what I mean by successful is it builds a very good economy. Money goes where it's treated well. You have to stop listening to all the bantering on either side of the aisle, the political dichotomy bullshit. Okay, Money simply goes wherever it's treated well. So they take our jobs and they all went overseas and all this stuff. That's because the money's treated better there. But when a government treats money well, It has prosperity. And its citizens have prosperity. Why is that a problem? Because there's a state involved. So the state starts taking all this money and saying, look what we can do with all this money. We can do all this good shit with this money. And then what happens next is the state decides it wants to do more than the money allows it to do. So it starts to borrow money. Now it has a debt to service. And a state, unlike the state, right, it's like the state of the United States, can print money. A state of California can't print money. It has restrictions on how much debt it can actually go into. So as that disbursement becomes a problem, they start saying, well, we need to get more money. So they begin to raise taxes, increase fees, come up with new programs, new pay-to-play programs and things like that. And the big businesses love this, at first anyway, because they can come in and buy their self a solution and suppress competition. But over time, this begins to wane on the economy. So even though they're asking for more money than ever, the total receipts as a percentage of the economy begin to go down. And oh, 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 the economy itself begins to go down. So then the only thing you can do at that point is keep looking for more and more and more. And what you do is you create this environment where a person says, they're, they're not going to put me in front of a firing squad for this. If I get caught, they'll find me. That's money that I already, you know, I'm supposed to pay them now. So they start doing, people start doing math and go, well, if I get away with this for five years and they only catch me for one or two things and then I have to pay for that, I'm still ahead. So they start to think, and then they start to, at, at some point too, they start to say, I can't afford to do this legally and I got to eat. And they create the very environment that they say they're trying to prevent. The state made this problem. 
and its solution is to crack down on the problem that it itself made. Not to back off and create a more free economic environment where people don't feel the need to do this stuff underground, but to actually be more draconian, and it's what always happens. So if you want to read this page, you can. But once again, it's the state of California basically saying, your property is really our property, and you're stealing from us by choosing how to use your property for your own uses. I'm just saying, that's what they do. That's what all states do. When I say states that way, I mean nations and republic states as well. Any any government body, right? A town does the same thing. A city will do the same thing. A county will do the same thing. Just a varying levels of, of infringement upon individual rights. It's not, it's not, you know, does a government infringe on its people's rights? No. It's how much does it infringe? There is no government that doesn't infringe on the rights of its people. If you can show me one, please do. And that little Libertopia thing that's in Asia or uh, near Russia somewhere or something, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. Um, I don't know if they're really going to get away with what they're doing. But show me a recognized nation, a recognized government, that does not interfere with any of the rights of its people. Show me one. You won't be able to do it. So here's an interesting question we could do a whole show on if we really wanted to get into who gets the money and where does it go. Uh, but again, trying to keep things short today so that we can have a lot of variety. Says uh, This comes from Jerry in West Virginia. Hey, Jack, what is corporate welfare? I'm sitting here thinking about a comment you made about corporate welfare being a much larger issue than social welfare. Can you explain what cor corporate welfare is, how it's given, and what should be done to stop it? Please elaborate. I love the show, and we'll look forward to hearing your thoughts. When, when you actually understand what corporate welfare is, there's a whole lot of people that claim to be against welfare that turn around and say, well, maybe I'm not against welfare as long as it's doing what it's doing. Again, I think that tax is theft, so I view it maybe differently than that. Um, but corporate welfare is anytime incentives are given to businesses that you don't get or that you otherwise would not get. Sometimes these are in tax incentives. Basically, if you do certain things, we will uh, give you a tax break, and all of a sudden you have companies like General Electric making billions of dollars and paying no taxes. And then the, the, the class warfare people tell you, they, they, they because they are doing business in China or some bullshit like that, and, you know, I mean, GE got a huge kickback from the Obama administration when, when the ass clown took, uh, you know, its first term of office and amounted to billions of dollars that they avoid paying taxes on as one of these subsidies incentives type situations. And then there's like, so I, incentives one thing, subsidies is really a difference. So subsidy is where we actually pay the business a certain amount or we subsidize what they're selling. So, for instance, a person that makes a solar panel, maybe we subsidize 20% of the value of it, and it can be done in a variety of ways. We can do a direct subsidy, and a direct subsidy is basically this plant built a solar panel, we'll just send them a check for 20% of the value of all their solar panels, and that drives down the cost that they sell to the consumer at. Or we can do an indirect subsidy, which basically means you as a consumer get to take advantage of the subsidy. So... If, if you were going to put in a $20,000 array uh, and then you could deduct, let's say, a 20%, you could deduct $4,000 from your income tax if you did it during the time that that exists. These are all examples of corporate welfare. You say, well, the indirect subsidy, how does that really benefit the, the, the company? Well, of course it benefits the company. It benefits the company more than it benefits you because the company then can go out and sell the product instead of as a $20,000 product as a $16,000 product. And that's exactly what they do. They say, well, it looks like it's 20, but it's not. Corporate welfare is every time this is done to enable business to do more business. 
And that's why I said a lot of people that, that, that you know, wail on welfare say this isn't a problem. But, you see, it is a problem. It's a problem for multiple reasons. One is that we're we've gotten to a point now where if you did cut it all off, there'd be a lot of problems really fast. We'd destroy the economy and a lot of people would go hungry. One of the biggest places subsidies go, of course, is in ag. So we have subsidized corn, and corn's in everything, and it's become a major ingredient in everything. I, I swear to God they must be subsidizing the back end somehow, because I've seen corn syrup put into things. Like You're like, I don't care how cheap it is, why would you even put a sweetener in there? You don't need it. There's no, there's no good reason for that crap to be in there, and yet it's in there anyway. And it might just be processing facilities are set up, and it's easier to run if it's already there. I don't know. But all of it's corporate welfare. There's And there's so many different types of it. It's not all federal. For instance, when the Dallas Cowboys decided they wanted to build a stadium, a new stadium, they shopped out the idea to several cities. And some cities said, piss off, we don't want your stadium. Uh, in fact, the city of Dallas basically did not want the Dallas Cowboys in Dallas. They didn't think you were worth the trouble. Uh, Arlington, Texas, uh, where I used to live, and uh, I really lived more, you know, my kid went to Mansfield schools. I was in this weird place between Mansfield and Arlington where you pay your taxes for the, the hospital and all to, to Arlington, but to the school for Mansfield. So that kind of gives you an idea. I'm down south where all this went on. And, uh, Arlington said, yeah, you could build a stadium here. And Jerry said, Jerry Jones, the uh, owner of the Cowboys said, well, it's not that simple. We want some money. We, we're going to build a $900 million stadium, and we want $300 million. Some, that's the numbers were something to that effect, you know. And uh, that's that's wrong. That's that's wrong. It was like nine. Well, let me let me look it up because I, I don't remember now. That that doesn't sound right though. You know what? Son of a gun, I was right. <laughs> it was 900 billion, and they asked for like 330, uh, 900 million, and they asked for like 330 million. And of course, the project went over budget and ended up being a 1.2 billion dollar stadium. Uh, now known as AT&T Stadium. And again, $1.2 billion was spent on this. And $300 million was paid for by the city of Arlington. Except, we all know this to be the, the case, the city doesn't have money. The city's people have money. The government has to take money from its people to have money. So what was done here, and it, this was the closest thing to a legitimate use of this I've ever seen. And I still don't like it. You voted if you wanted this or not, and it was paid for with a sales tax increase for three years that then went away, and it did. These things always make me nervous because it sounds a lot like how they got toll roads in all over here. Um, back in uh, the 70s or early 80s, they needed to uh, put I-30 in a new version of I-30 that goes right through the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth. And they sold this, we'll do it as a tollway. Once it's paid for, we'll take the booths down. And it'll go away. And everybody approved it. And then they did it several other times. And son of a gun, if they didn't stay tollways, it was like a bait and switch. But so with Dallas Cowboys Stadium, you voted on it. It was a quarter percent increase in the local sales tax rate for three years or sufficient to pay back the, the money to the Cowboys. So the, 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 the city basically went in as like a loan consignment thing here. And so the Cowboys could get the money for construction. And then the city pays back the, their, their part of the debt with this sales tax increase. And the, 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 the claim made was this is worth way more than $300 million to you if you live in Arlington. The amount of revenue that will come in from this. you know, And you, know, you can do the math, and technically they're not wrong. Um, the amount of money that came in 
because we had a Super Bowl here, and the old stadium would have never had a Super Bowl at it, probably came to about a third of that amount of money coming back into the economy. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is these types of things being done by government disrupt the natural order of the market to the point where the market literally becomes dependent upon them, and they stop being something we do to get something done like a new stadium, and they become how business is done. And it adds up into trillions of dollars. And if you've ever wondered how a huge company can pay almost no taxes, this is how. And the huge company employs a lobbyist that is a, a fraction of the cost of the taxes they would pay to go in and lobby for the incentive to be put in place for that company. And the big problem is, is here that those things tend to, to not really apply to you and, and your small business. Though there's stuff like that, but it always is to benefit the larger business. So there'll be subsidies that subsidize certain vehicles that you can buy for your business and then write off business taxes against it uh, at a higher level than you would normally be able to. But it's not really about helping your business. It's about helping the manufacturer of the vehicle. So that's corporate uh, welfare in a nutshell. We're not going to solve that problem today, and we're certainly not going to figure out how to fix that problem today. Because those that say just cut it off, again, I'd like it all cut off everywhere. But there's a reality as to where you are. So, for instance, if I'm in a car with a guy holding me in the car at gunpoint, and an opportunity comes up for me to jump out of the car and get away, I'm going to jump out of the car. If the car is currently doing 90 miles an hour on an interstate system with big trucks coming back and forth and all, even though he turned his head away from me, I'm not going to jump out of the car at 90 miles an hour. I'm going to be just as dead. In fact, I might be more likely to survive a gunshot than that and be run over by an 18-wheeler. If you get run over by an 18-wheeler, you're done. I mean, there's just there's no way out of that one. So you have to choose when and how you extract yourself from things once you've become embroiled in them to a certain level. And that's where we are with co corporate welfare. Corporate welfare literally fuels the U.S. economy at this point. And, and what the defenders of it will say is, see, that's a good thing. But it doesn't have to. It, it's It's... Basically, business is atrophied under this system to where business doesn't know how to solve its own problems anymore. It's the same thing that's happened with the stock market. I mean, you could really look at these bailouts as another form of corporate welfare. Indeed, they are. And I mean the long-term quantitative easing. That's just throwing money at the banks, right? And then every time something goes wrong with the market, the whole financial institution network and all the people and all the investors turn to the Fed and go, do something. Like a, like a, like a big crybaby. The market's become a crybaby under this mentality, you know, I mean, and, and what has it done to farms? Like, people say, well, you farmers wouldn't be able to make money without without these subsidies. Farmers might be a lot smaller farms making a lot more money per acre without the subsidies. Well, that means our food would cost more. Yeah, well, we pay less for food than just about anybody in the world as a percentage of our income. And, and, we're, and we're buying cheap garbage-level food on a daily basis. We can raise good quality, high-end nutritional food without subsidies. It is going to cost more. But that doesn't mean that we should destroy the incentive to produce, which is what welfare always does, whether it's corporate or, or individual welfare. One way or another, we destroy the will of production in a subsidized economy, which is what we have. Let's go ahead and take another one. Oh, one more thing before we move on. We also end up paying more. Whenever the government does something, 
We end up spending amounts of money that are astronomical and ridiculous to do things that we, we don't really need to spend that much money to do. For instance, the high school my son graduated from was built the year that, uh, the year before we moved back to Texas. And so he went to a brand new school. $63 million. $63 million to build one high school. $63 million. I, I, I stand in awe of that number and think without the government dictating how and what and where and when and interfering, and that's not paying teachers' salaries. That was the construction cost alone. What could we really build with $63 million? What could we build with 30 and how would it compare? Uh, we can't build a giant you know, eight-hour-a-day prison system, which is what we build with public education dollars uh, for that kind of money. But we could probably build something that would do the job a hell of a lot better. What would that money have done if it had been invested in enabling students to, to learn without going to a place? I'm just saying. And that will never happen in a system that's dependent upon control. Kind of a technical question here. How is your podcast set up? This comes from Damon. Uh, I am trying to set up my own podcast and having problems. You're, you use PodPress. I can't find this. I know you have your files on the .NET and all the posts are on the main site. Are you limited to 64 megabit uploads? If so, how do you keep it below 64 megabits? Uh, all tutorials I can find uh, use third-party file hosting site. Is there a better option? Thanks, Damon. Um, again, trying to keep this short. PodPress is an extension for WordPress. So to get PodPress, you first have to set up a site in WordPress, and then you go into where these things are called plugins, install new plugins, and search for PodPress, and you'll find it. You click a button, and you install it. As for hosting the audio on the .NET, that was done at a time for a different reason that doesn't really apply anymore, but since it was already that way, we kept it that way. Because both of the domains are on the same server box right now. But when you upload a file, an audio file, and you have PodPress, you just tell PodPress, copy and paste the link to the actual audio file, and it embeds it and just does it all for you. And there's some stuff in there you can configure, and you can go figure it out, but it's really, really simple. And when I say simple, it's simple if you're familiar with things like WordPress and, and blogging and, and plugins. If you're not, it'll take you a couple days to figure it all out. And then once you do, you know, it, it, it becomes very simple very quickly. As far as my file size, I run my files at 32 kilobits, not even 64. Um, uh, the reason is... I, that is the same quality as FM radio. And I just feel that's good enough for an audio show. FM radio is good enough for your podcast, guys. These people that are encrypting at like 128, it's insane. Especially when you're doing a show an hour, hour and a half, two hours, some days are longer. The file size just kills your, your, your listeners. I, I've never had anybody complain about audio quality on this show where it was due to the file size that I, I render out at. Now, how do I do that? I do that in a program called Sony Vegas, uh, which is really a video editing program. And when I select MP3, it gives me different encryption levels, different compression levels that I can choose. And I chose, I, I chose 32 because when I tried 16, it got tinny. That's where the, that's where the downgrade came from. 
So unless you're listening on like high fidelity Bose audio stereo high definition stuff or something, you you can't really tell much of a difference between 32 and and 128. One might be a little deeper and richer, but I don't think that's why people listen to my shows. So they can sit around and go, "Wow, Jack has a deep, rich voice, man. That's cool." I think that way too many podcasters are so into the audio, they're more worried about the audio than the content. So most programs will encrypt at various rates for your MP3 levels, and you just need to find one that does what you want. Uh, as far as a third-party hosting site, I prefer to host my own content, but Lipson's pretty good, and it would be you know something that would probably work well. Uh, but with the beauty with PodPress is it doesn't matter, and you can always change your mind because all it ever needs to know is where the file is, and all you need to do is pull up, pull it up in your browser. And copy the link and drop it in. So as far as the rest of my setup, I use a Samsung CO1U USB Studio Condenser Microphone. And the reason I can say that so perfectly is because it's right in front of me now, and I'm looking at the little green light under Samsung, and the model number's right there. So it's not like I just have that memorized in my head, though I do. Um, but it's it, it's it's a great little microphone. They sell for about 120 bucks. And uh, you plug it into a USB port, and I use Audacity to record. Uh, even though Vegas will record, I feel like I like Audacity for recording the, sh the, the stuff better. And if you don't want to spend any money, Audacity will render out MP3 files for you. Uh, you'll need a thing called Lane DLL or something like that. But if you just, when it tells you you need it, Google what it says that you need, and you'll be able to find it, and you can use that. Uh, exactly what, I, I don't even pay attention Because I record in WAV and I go into Vegas in WAV because my I have a program called Levelator I'll talk about in a second. It needs WAV anyway. So I do all my Audacity renderings in a WAV file, which is a very big file, a Microsoft protocol. And uh, then when I get everything edited, I spit that as an MP3 out because that's what you need for podcasting. Nothing but MP3. So Audacity will do MP3, but what um, compression it allows, I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, you'll have to find out. But I imagine it's probably 64 at the at the floor. I don't think it would go much higher than that as a floor anyway. Um, but I've never even checked or tried or cared. But Audacity's free. Audacity. Just Google it and you can download it. And the last product that I use is a thing called Levelator. And I don't always use it, but I most often use it. And I definitely use it on any show where I have an interview Or I have like the call-in shows, or I have the expert shows where I have all these people at all different levels. Instead of sitting there dicking around trying to get everything leveled out, I just put everything together and something that's really quiet, I put it on what's called in audio editing, we call them layers. So you, you don't have everything on one line. You pull them down to lower layers. You can control the up and down gain on that individual layer. So when somebody, one of my expert council members, Nick Ferguson, sends in an audio file that's really quiet. Um, I put him on one and I you know, boost that by like 6 dB to get things sort of close, just kind of a sloppy close, and then I render that as a .wav file. And I just open that up and then there's a, a program called Audacity, or give me Levelator, and you just drag and drop the file in there and it starts this little bar thing going. And it takes you know, 15 minutes or so, and it levels the volumes out to all reasonable levels so that you don't have those wide swings, really loud, really quiet, really loud, really quiet. Uh, and then I pull that back into Vegas, and I render it as an MP3 with music on it. And never put your music in Levelator, because it will level your music, and music's not supposed to be level. 
right? So you set your volume on your music on your own, your fades, render that as an MP3, throw it on the server, drop it into, and it, I, I do it, all, except for the recording part, I do it all faster than I just explained it. And you will too if you just work on it, trust me. And jackspearco.com definitely has some videos over there and some explanations over there of exactly how I do what I do uh, on the Five Minutes with Jack podcast that I haven't done for years, but there's over 100 episodes there. You should check that out as well. Here's an interesting one. Remember, I am not a doctor. I don't play one on TV, and I'm not a dog doctor, also known as a vet, but I do know quite a bit about snakes. It says, Hi, Jack. I would like your thoughts on protecting my dog and family from venomous snakes, particularly copperheads. I recently walked to Freedom from Denver, Colorado, to Parker County, Texas. We have five acres of oak savanna and rural area. We're mostly surrounded by uncleared five-ten-acre lots. One of them with a pond seasonal creek about 50 yards from my property line. My new neighbors warned us that they have problems with copperheads. One of them claimed to be shooting 15 to 20 a day in a ditch during the spring. First, are they shitting me? Second, if they aren't, what can I do to protect my dog and family? I'd rather not have to resort to killing snakes. I'd rather just uh, prefer to be somewhere else. A year ago, I started listening to you. I was frustrated with my job, our society, and place to live. Uh, I feel you've helped me put these feelings into context and inspired me to take steps to fix things within the power, uh, my power to fix. In July, I sold my shitty house next to a freeway in Denver, bought this awesome place in Texas for just about the same price. Now I have, a, I still have a lame job, but helping my wife build her online business, working on our debt. I'm excited about the prospect of making my property productive and harmonious. Thanks, man. If your goal is to help others get to a better space, you're succeeding, Jeremy. Well, let's see if I can help you here, Jeremy. First of all, Poolville sounded familiar, so I looked it up, and you're just north or up there, Springtown. Um, you are about 20 miles, if that, north of my location. I don't even think it's 20 miles. Um, so your area and my area are very, very similar. And this is what I can tell you about your neighbors. Yeah, they're full of shit. They're not shooting freaking, you know, 15, 20, 30 freaking copperheads a day in a ditch. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're full of shit. They're not even shooting 15 to 20 snakes a day in, in a ditch. There, there's just no way. There's no way there's that many snakes anywhere that are copperheads. Uh, it just doesn't happen. What, what they pro if there's a ditch there with water in it, there's probably a whole bunch of uh, green water snakes or diamondback water snakes. Uh, usually idiots think they're moccasins, not copperheads, but God only knows. And they probably shoot one of those every once in a while, and all of a sudden that becomes 15 to 20. If they were shooting 15 to 20 snakes a day, there wouldn't be very long for there weren't no damn snakes around. Now, there are copperheads in this area. Um, in fact, this weekend we had to go to Tractor Supply, and there was a, a wildlife education group there, uh, and they had uh, several different snakes, prairie king snakes, Texas rat snakes, stuff like that, on display so people could see what they look like and compare them to these venomous snakes. And they had a copperhead that was actually captured in the area. So there's one. So it does. it's not like it doesn't ever happen, but they're not that common. They're just not around here. They're here. Don't get me. I'm going to get somebody sending me hate mail saying, I, I saw one in my backyard and you don't know. Uh, I do know they, 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 they do exist around here. They're real. You know, it's, it makes you think of the M&M's cartoon, or not cartoon, commercial for, uh, with Santa in it. He does exist, right? They do exist. But I've never seen one. And I go looking for them. And at one time in my life, I really looked hard. Um, Now, when I lived in Pennsylvania in the Appalachian Mountains, I saw copperheads a lot. So, they're full of shit. That doesn't mean there's no poisonous snakes or venomous snakes. I usually get on people for that, too. Uh, but it doesn't mean there's no venomous snakes in your area. 
but there's probably not as many as you would you know think. The most common snakes here that that, that in, in my experience uh, have been yellow-bellied racers, which are kind of like an olive drab green-colored snake with a yellow belly. And when they're juveniles, they're kind of spotted and they look a lot more like a rat snake. And then people think they're copperheads. That's when they're really little, their first year as juveniles. And they go into that solid color eventually. And Texas rat snakes, which people also mistake as copperheads because they are kind of orangish brown type of thing. In fact, I have a video where we found one on this property here that I captured and released that some idiot had tried to murder with a weed whacker. And uh, those often get called uh, copperheads, but they're not even they're not even seeing 15 to 20 Texas rat snakes a day in the spring, let alone copperheads. Could there be some kind of a breeding den or something around this place? I, it's possible, but it's not likely. Copperheads are relatively shy snakes. Their their big danger is when you look at one like on like a, a in a in a cage or something where you can see it. They're actually very beautiful. There's orange and brown and the coloring. They're, they're, and certain certain phases of them have even more intense colors, and they're a very beautiful snake. But that color is not designed to be beautiful. It's designed to blend in, and it does a good job in rocks and dark leaves and things like that. They really blend in. And they do tend to hold their ground. Like, they don't want to be messed with, but what they try to do is not move so that you won't see them, so that you'll pass them. But if you happen to step on them, they will bite the shit out of you. There's no doubt about it. The good news, if there can be such good news, remember, there is no venomous snake with training wheels. I'm going to say that one more time. There is no venomous snake with training wheels. Getting bit by any of them sucks, but no one dies from a copperhead bite. Anaphylaxis is always a possibility. Some people die from bee stings. But unless you have that problem, you don't run around worried that you might get stung by a bee and die. So odds are that you or your dog being bit by a uh, copperhead and going to get basic medical care would be all you would need, and they probably would not even administer any venom for a copperhead bite. Water moccasins are a different story, and so are rattlesnakes. Those also exist around here. And I have gotten to a point where there's been times where I think somebody's full of crap about rattlesnakes, and then you turn up, and there's a rattlesnake. So they do exist, again. They are not as common here, though, as most of our other snakes. Again, we have the green and diamondback water snakes in every lake and river and canal and stream in this area. And 90% of the snakes you will see in water are one of those two. Uh, the the, the uh, yellow belly racers, Texas rat snakes, very, very common. There are some bull snakes around here. They puff and they hiss and whatever. You really have to be out of your mind to mistake a bull snake for a copperhead, but I've seen that done. We have the you know, little garter snakes and stuff show up. Smooth earth snakes look like little worms when you dig them out of the ground. Um, I've seen some ringneck snakes around here. They're completely harmless. They don't get much bigger than a, a worm. Um, coral snakes do exist. I've never found one. Not here, ever. Um, you really have to go out of your way to get bitten by a coral snake. Dogs, unfortunately, will sometimes go out of their way to get bitten by anything that moves because they, they, they want to investigate, they want to see it, they want to attack it. But dogs do better in general than humans when bit by snakes. And I, I have mixed feelings about the rattlesnake vaccine for dogs. I've had ranchers that have dogs on ranches their whole life in Texas that are in their 70s tell me dogs get bit by rattlesnakes all the time. They swell up and they recover, and I've never lost one. And that rattlesnake vaccine is useless. And I've had other people swear to God that it works, and I've, I've heard differing opinions from vets on it. Um, it probably wouldn't hurt, but it might not help. I probably wouldn't worry about it. I would say, first of all, for anybody moving anywhere uh, from out of town to a new place, never believe anybody's bullshit. Okay, Always verify. 
but really don't believe it when you do that. I mean, I remember when Keith Snow moved to Montana, he was calling me about what kind of gun to buy because he was convinced there were going to be grizzly bears at his, his back door every day because they were hazing the greenhorn. That's what's going on here. These guys are full of shit. Because if he's got a place where there's 15 to 20 copperheads a day in the spring, I only live 20 miles away. You tell him to get in touch with me when they're going to be there, and I'll come look at them. I, and, and I will give him a $100 bill if he shows me 15 copperheads walking around in a ditch in one day uh, 20 miles away from me. I'll give him my own $100 bill because I know he's full of shit. And whatever he, and he might even think he's telling you the truth because he might be hedging a little on those numbers, but he might see snakes. But you're not going to find that kind of density of population in copperheads in north central Texas. You're not. Or you'd hear of a hell of a lot more people being bit by them. You really would. And when somebody gets bit by a snake around here, oh my God, it's on the evening news, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, experts say snakes want to be alone, but it's still dangerous to go to the hospital immediately. You know, the, the whole typical shit. And, and you always find out it's like, you know, it's a copperhead or a rattler, and some kid jacked around with it, played with it, or some young male played with it and got bit. There are quite a few bites every year in the United States, but you know where the majority of them happen? The lower arm and hand. And the majority of people bitten are young males. Ladies and gentlemen, what does that tell us? Dun, dun, dun. Young men are stupid and play with things they don't know how to handle and get bit. And then, oh, crap, i got to go to the hospital. So um, don't waste your time with snake repellent. That's not going to work. Um, good training for your dog is a good idea. You probably will um, at some point run across a rat snake or uh, what have you. And one of the things you can do is get a good training collar to work with your dog anyway. And if you get that teaching moment, you might want to train the dog to alert but not to approach. That would let you know there's a snake in the area. And you can do that by giving the dog a distance that he's allowed to get to, rewarding him from that distance. But when he advances further, giving that collar a vibration, once he's had you know one shock or two shocks, that's all it ever takes. And they'll learn to stay away from that thing but to let you know that it's there, which would be you know highly advantageous. Um but don't over-worry about this one. You're being hazed, dude, uh, by people that not only are they hazing you, they probably couldn't identify a copperhead if, if you put a picture in front of them. Let me tell you another quick story. So on the Texas Fishing Forum, where I used to post a lot years and years ago, um, we got into this debate one time about all these water moccasins. There's water moccasins everywhere in the lakes around here, water moccasins. And finally, I was sick of it. So I made this collage. It was four snakes. And I said, okay, and I, I did a brand new post so that it stood alone away from all this debating and said, A, B, C, or D, which one is the cop, cottonmouth slash water moccasin? And I let it run for about 80 responses and people arguing they're all only the B is, it's C and D, whatever. And I just waited. Days go by of people arguing about this, but everybody's sure at least one of them is the cottonmouth or moccasin. In the end, uh, they were all. Yes, all the same species of snake, and none of them were water moccasins. They were all the most common water snake around here, the diamondback water snake, which has pattern changes over time and gets darker and less patterned as it gets older. So I took like a juvenile, a sub-adult, an adult, and an old snake and put them into a collage, and none of them were venomous. And all these self-proclaimed outdoorsman experts that have lived here my whole life, and I know damn well what a water moccasin looks like, and that sea is a water moccasin. No, 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 it's not. No, it's not. And no, you don't. You see a big, dark snake in the water, you assume. And we all know what that does. So let's go ahead and take one more and we'll wrap up for today. We did everything else today, so how about a gun question? Jack, your thoughts 
on 7.62 by 39 versus 223 caliber for a mid-sized sporting rifle to be used for plinking, varmint control, and if need be, mid-sized games such as whitetail at appropriate ranges. Details. For many reasons that I will not bother you with, I have decided I want a Ruger mini-style sporting rifle for the above activities. My wife currently has an SKS chambered in 762 by 39 which we will be storing ammunition for. Basically, will the 223 caliber have notice, notable or any superiority over the latter uh, to justify using and storing it rather than sticking to one single caliber? Your thoughts would be much appreciated. Thank you. 223 or 762 by 39. Um, the, 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 the infinite debate in every gun forum on planet Earth, especially AR15.com. You're never going to get everybody to agree about this. It really is not that one's better than the other. They just have different attributes. And here's how I feel about them. As a deer gun, both of them suck. Now, I know a lot of people have killed deer with both of them, but as a deer caliber, they both suck. A 30-30, an old Winchester 30-30, has been with us for 125 years or something like that is a better deer caliber than either of these, even though the 7.62 on paper technically gets close to it, but not in a way that really works out. It really doesn't. They will both kill deer. I would actually have to tell you that for especially like you know smaller deer at appropriate ranges, which is probably 200 yards or less, um, the 2.23 with a 55-grain trophy-bonded bear claw Uh, bullet is probably well superior and it's probably totally up to the task it's just it's not the best thing for deer so i would tell a person that they'd be better off going to a gun show and finding an old savage model 10 and 308 or something like that as a deer rifle and putting a beat up bushnell you know 25 scope on it use scope as long as it holds true or buying a brand new one for 50 bucks and, and using that for your deer Does that mean that I would never shoot a deer with either of these other calibers? No, it's just it's not a deer round. Okay, plinking and varmint control. Okay, um, <laughs> plinking you want to do cheap. Uh, in general, you can get surplus seven six two ammo for less than two two three. So, plinking, I'd say goes your seven six two. But what what do you mean by plinking? Um. The 223 is a... See, here's the thing. You get into specialization versus generalization. What was the 7.62 by 39 meant to do? High rates of fire at medium velocity to incapacitate human beings on the battlefield. That is the purpose of this round. That is, that is the purpose of this round. To, to be engaged with uh, a man-stopping capacity at moderate to short ranges. Nobody that, I don't care what you say about your buddy that can knock off a silhouette at a thousand yards with his SKS. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Please don't tell me your stupid stories. I just heard one about snakes. Um, when that, when that round was designed, it was never intended to be a long range round. It kind of flew in the face of what everybody thought of for warfare because 
you know, you, if you look at old battle rifles, your old bolt-action Mausers and stuff, they have these sights that graduate out to like a thousand yards or further, fifteen hundred yards, some of them, to shoot at troop formations, not to shoot at individual targets, right? So it was we wanted to be able to reach out and not to be truthful. The first centerfire rounds in in modern warfare, the the goal was will they kill a horse or will they at least knock a horse down because cavalry was still used so much. Okay, when this was made, it was designed for close quarters warfare. The, the original concept of the assault rifle, okay, that type of thing, and. The, the the Soviet bloc having to do more with less figured out hey we can make this SKS thing and then they figured we can make this AK thing with it and it was just and it was battle proven to be a, a massive success it, it really was and a, a bigger bullet puts a bigger hole that is more likely to result in lethality all else being equal the two two three the two two three was designed to maintain longer ranges okay to do high velocity tumbling bullet damage to human beings. That's what that round is supposed to do. And it was supposed to do it in a way that let a soldier carry, let's say, a thousand rounds, and they would weigh less than a thousand rounds of a thirty caliber round. And it was supposed to be just as lethal. That's that's its goal. Is it just as lethal? It depends. Ballistics get gray. I know of one verified story where a, a guy was shot in the ass on a battlefield with a two two three round, a five five six NATO round, um, left or right ass cheek, and the bullet came out the right were about where the collarbone and clavicle meet by the neck on the left side of the head, where the bullet turned and, and you bet that guy was dead as a doornail. And then we've had other situations where frangible rounds have basically kind of turned and and done little damage. It, it all depends. Slower, heavier bullets generally penetrate better. And faster bullets tend to fragment or tumble or do more amounts of damage as they enter and pass through and create a wound. And this this debate will never go away. And it's more about what you want than what works better. Because uh, an animal with a hole through both lungs will run as far as it can hold its breath, in the words of Jack O'Connor. Uh, this is this goes back. I mean, really, this is a Jack O'Connor Elmer Keith debate: high velocity light bullet versus slow velocity heavy bullet, or moderate velocity heavy bullet. What would I get if I were you? Being that you even have the question in your mind, that means to me you're open to both of them. And if you already have a weapon in seven six two by thirty nine, you already have ammo for it, and you're already storing ammo for it, then it would might make sense to just go ahead and buy this in the same round. It really might. Now, I don't know that I would choose your particular platform uh, for either round. I think there's better guns for both, but there's nothing wrong with the Ruger Mini series. Uh, so if you, that's what you want to do, then you know go for it. Um, I, I think the two two three either excels in a a, a true bolt-action type sporting rifle or in its intended platform, the AR M16 style platform, uh, at, at best. I, I really do. I just think that's where it is at its best. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it matters. I don't think you can do this wrong in the end. And I, I don't think most people have the, the, the balls to say that. Everybody wants to pick a winner in these, these like, you know, is, is, which, which is a better all-around shotgun, the 12-gauge the or the 20-gauge, for what reasons, you know. And one you can carry more, one you can reach out further with, etc. I, 
I, I think either way would be fine, but since you already have that and you're thinking common caliber, um, it, it can make sense. If you, when you say for varmint control, okay, if we're going to put optics on this Ruger Mini, and varmint control means things like coyotes and stuff, and it means shots out to 300 yards uh, or more, then you want the 223. So it all depends on what you mean by varmint control. Planking, pff, whatever, right? Mid-sized game, whitetails, it's not good for either one, but the 223 is probably, with proper shot placement, hitting ribs, not shoulders, uh, and, 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 and consciously thinking about what you're doing and, and not shooting the biggest deer, right? Like, you, 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 there's a big difference between a North Pennsylvania whitetail buck that's three and a half years old and a typical, uh, Texas whitetail or South Florida whitetail. They're very small in comparison. Uh, and that does matter. But the 223 is probably a better round for deer, too. It's definitely a better varmint round. There's no doubt if you're going to be shooting things like prairie dogs or coyotes uh, or groundhogs or whatever, it is a more precise, um, the accurate round, way more precisely accurate. The 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 the, the, the people you know the, the seven six two was never designed to be a precision round. It wasn't the point. It's like you hit a person. You look, have you seen how big a person is, right? Have you seen the head on a prairie dog? If, if, if varmint means consistent use on varmints at, at longer ranges, 223. Otherwise, you can't go wrong with that. Hope everybody enjoyed that one. Uh, I'm going to play a different song for you today. This has come in from several different listeners. I actually just got a text about it today from uh, a listener named Gary from uh, South Central Texas, and I've, I've gotten emails on it from several other people. The song is called Dirt. Listen to the words, and this one is probably worth going to YouTube and watching the video for, which, as I always do when I put in music you've not heard before or I think you might not have heard before, I always have a link to the YouTube video that it's up, available to be seen on. But this is a, a really great song and a really great video. Again, Dirt, and the artist is called, the band is uh, a, a modern band, uh, Florida Georgia Line. This, this song came out in 2014. Um, it is a little formulaic, like all modern music is, but it is a damn good song, and the words are really the important thing here. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I'll tell you something. 1968 was just another year the fields needed tilling, and there wasn't enough rain. But it was the first year Rosie started bringing my lunch out to the field every day. You get your hands in it, plant your roots in it, dusty headlight dance with your boots in it. Tires on it, build your cornfield whiskey bonfires on it. You bet your life on it.
Rosie and I had five children. One died of birth. Tough times, tough years, but we did okay. You make some sweat with it, taking a shovel to it. You stuck some crosses and some painted gold posts through it. You know you came from it. And someday you'll return to the self-shaded rose clay. travel and see the world. No, she said, the uh, world comes right to my window every day, even if it is broken. You know you came from it. And someday you'll return to See, Rosie was right about two things. You don't have to see the world to be worldly. Just raise good children, bake good enough pies. The world will come right to your kitchen window. She was right about something else, too. I built that baseball diamond way too close to the kitchen. You know you came from here. Someday 